Hi, everyone. My name is Chad Nitschke, co-founder and CEO of Bunker, and also host of this podcast, Ready, Set, Work. Ready, Set, Work is a podcast series focused on the future of work, specifically highlighting all different perspectives from the gig economy to on-demand platforms and more. Join us each episode to hear from thought leaders paving the way toward the future of work. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I'm here talking with Michael Burdick, co-founder and CEO of Paro. Michael and his team are empowering finance and accounting professionals to embrace the future of work and to disrupt the $150 billion accounting industry. Uh, prior to joining Paro, Michael was a consultant with Deloitte, where his drive for recreating the finance and accounting value chain through technology uh, began. Um, he's been a regular contributor to leading publications on topics related to the freelance economy, and we're excited to have uh, Michael here on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Chad. Yeah, our pleasure. Uh, so maybe to kick things off, do you want to start off by just talking a little bit about what Paro does? And um, we love to hear kind of the origins of the company too. Um, so if you want to shed some light on that and, and uh, maybe to kick things off too, I'm, I'm really curious about the name Paro. So like, where did that come from? Sure. I'll tell you a little bit about what we do and what our vision around the future of work looks like. So specifically what we do, we help growing companies gain confidence in their finances. And what we do is match businesses with the highest quality pre-screened, pre-vetted finance and accounting professionals. So everything from FP&A folks to accountants, CPAs, and CFOs who provide this remote on-demand expertise when those clients need it. And our quality imperative is real. We really care a lot about that. Our acceptance rate is less than 2% on the freelancer side of the house. So it's a very curated marketplace and network. And therefore, clients know that they're working with the best of the best. So that's, that's what we do and who we are. And then in terms of Paro, the name in the background there, the honest story is at the time of forming the company, you know, we were looking through a list of two to 300 different names, something that meant something to all of us and also had an available domain. And Paro in Latin, its Latin derivation means to reaper to harvest. And we felt like that preparation of financial statements really made sense just from a meaning standpoint. So it was a little combination of uh, creativity, mindfulness, and just what was available on the internet. <laughs> Interesting, no, that's a great story. and. Um, so then was it kind of your work at Deloitte that got you interested in uh, solving this problem? Yeah, that's exactly it. So my background started at Deloitte and finance and accounting is what I know. And I actually in business school, so talking, you know, conservative background at Deloitte to going to business school, which is also very conservative, not to stereotype or anything like that. Um, but I was freelancing on the side and testing on a number of different platforms. And it's just a friction ridden, painful process for freelancers. And so I married up those two, which was my background in finance accounting, plus this pain point that I was, it was real and I perceived and out came Paro. Cool. And is it, does it, um, I'm curious on, you know, kind of the, the freelancers that are on your platform today, is it really a combination of kind of accounting and finance professionals? Is it more focused on accounting or like what are some, some of maybe the highest number of like types of freelancers you have on the platform? It's split about 50, 50 down the middle. Um, accounting, we're, we're talking all white collar, very qualified, uh, highly skilled professionals. So, Controllers, CPAs is on the controller on the uh, accounting side of the house, and then on the finance side, you're talking about VPs of finance, financial analysts, CFOs. 
So we're, we're split about 50-50, but the beauty of it is usually all that rolls underneath the finance function at larger organizations, so we can cross-sell them additional resources over time. Got it. No, that makes sense. And then on the demand side of it, is it like everything from small businesses that are looking for finance and accounting professionals up to larger companies? So it's the typical uh, startup story, you know, where you start small and then you create disruption as you move big. And right now our focus is on the mid-market and over time we're building relationships with enterprises as well. Our value proposition is entirely focused on a quality imperative. So everything we do is embodied in that and building a brand name synonymous with quality. And so that value proposition really rings true with the mid-market where they're looking for the highest skilled professional who can tackle very specific problems that are company specific. As you move into smaller organizations, it's usually more of a cost conscious play. So it doesn't necessarily ring true to what our value proposition is and what our values are. So mid-market really aligns pretty nicely with that. Got it. And how do you, so if you target kind of that top 2%, so really top quartile performers, um, I'm curious, like how do you find them? How do you vet them? Um, and is there like a credentialing process on the platform or? Yeah, so they actually find us for the most part because freelancing, as I mentioned earlier, is a friction-filled process. Uh, the biggest pain point that freelancers have is income predictability, i.e. they don't have that. So what I mean by that is freelancers, for the most part, don't know how much they're going to make in the future. Call it a couple days from now, a couple weeks from now, a couple months from now. And that's pretty painful. And that, that unknown future is scary. And I experienced this firsthand whenever I was freelancing in business school. And so we've set out to solve specifically that. And because of the friction that exists within freelancing today, freelancers, because of the value proposition we bring to the table and help freelancers fill their pipeline with work, uh, we have a ton of inbounds from freelancers trying to make it onto our network, which is a very competitive process. Yeah. And I really do feel like that quality piece is critical, um, you know, because we've hired uh, freelancers off of different platforms and, um, you know, it is hard without some sort of vetting process. You just ultimately never know what you're going to get. And um, so that, that definitely resonates with, um, with me. And I, I'm curious kind of where you see the industry going. So, you know, we work with a variety of on-demand platforms and we're starting to see more and more kind of vertically focused yeah. Uh, platforms, you know, so similar to Paro, right? So, um, and I'm curious as, you know, kind of this on-demand economy continues to mature, um, how do you see that evolving with kind of this specific kind of niche focus versus kind of the everything for everyone um, approach? Well, I think that brand name is everything. So whenever you think of brands, the iconic ones like Coke and Pepsi, they're known for something. Right? They're, they're known for the sugar-filled, uh, amazing drinks that are filled with caffeine and make you feel great. Um, that's what they're known for. That's their brand. And if you think about that exact idea, what, what do I go to someone for? What do I know them as? What are they valuable for? You have to be associated with something. Um, otherwise, people don't know what you are. They can't wrap their head around what that value proposition is. And I won't name names, but I think a lot of these horizontal marketplaces 
are a little bit lost because the end consumers are like, what do I go to you for? Do I go to you for transcription services and low-end commoditized work? Or do I go to you for the highest quality engineers out there or the highest quality finance professionals out there? And we want to be known as the the go-to source for the highest quality finance and accounting professionals. We are known as that. And that's the brand that we're building. And I think that's an, uh, that's incredibly important to build that brand name recognition. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. So I'm curious. So let's say I'm an accounting professional and I want to get onto the Paro platform. Um, what do I do to kind of distinguish myself to kind of make it into that top 2% so I can be part of uh, that network? Well, it's a rigorous screening process and we take it pretty seriously because as I mentioned around this idea of brand, what we're constantly trying to do is build trust within the market. And that's tough because it's not a short-term play. It takes a long time pattern recognition. And the idea of trust is centered around, you know, can I give Paro's freelancers access to my financials and trust them to do a fantastic job? That's hard. And so we take our quality imperative incredibly seriously, and therefore our screening process is more rigorous than if you're looking to get hired internally within an organization. And so sure, there are a few false positives that we've had before. We're learning from that and constantly trying to get better. Um, but we do take it incredibly seriously. So there are competency tests, background checks, interviews, reference checks, practice projects, a lot of things that take a ton of time and, and so that value proposition of the quality imperative is completely real and we take it very seriously. Interesting. So how long does that process take then? If I'm, if I'm not accounting professional, um, like from start to finish, kind of what does that look like? From a pure hours commitment, I'd say 20 hours-ish from a timing standpoint, depends on how quickly you're going through it, right? If you're super responsive and eager to make it in, could be as short as one to two weeks. If it takes longer for you to get back to us, then it could be longer than that. Yeah. And I mean, that's definitely quick when you contrast it with the traditional kind of workplace, right? Where you apply for a job and you don't even hear anything <laughs> for one to two weeks. And so um, that, that's kind of a good segue into the next question. When you think about the appeal, so if I'm an accounting professional, a finance professional, and maybe I've worked W2 jobs in the past, um, what do you think, and you probably heard this from your uh, from your experts, but what do you think makes it attractive for them to be an independent worker? Everything comes back to the, quali uh, the qualitative benefits of freelancing. And I think they're far and wide. I've heard a ton of statistics. One of them that rings through time and time again with me is 50% of freelancers would not take a full-time job no matter how much you'd offer them. That's kind of an astonishing statistic. It's basically saying, if you're making a hundred grand a year as a freelancer, you wouldn't take a job even if they offered you 250K. I mean, if you think about that, that basically says that the qualitative benefits of freelancing, i.e. choice and flexibility, uh, working on passion projects, autonomy, they are so much more powerful and uh, the benefits of them outweigh the opportunity cost of taking more money to the point where they would not give up that choice. And, and that, that's kind of astonishing to me. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And when you, when you think about that statistic about, you know, kind of half of the workforce being independent and, um, you know, at some point you have to assume that people will be entering the workforce who basically want to start off being independent 
right away, right? So they're not W2 shifting to be independent. They're just like starting off that way. And how does that, how do you think that will evolve without having, let's say, you know, you didn't come from a W2 job, so you don't have maybe credentials or background, but you graduated from a top school and you're, you know, kind of ready to, to work. Like, how do you think that is going to kind of shift for just the workforce uh, over time? So first off, I've heard those statistics too. You know, fit, leading analysts project that by 2027, 50% of the workforce will be freelancing. I think it's a little aggressive, but there is a tidal wave towards the freelance gig economy. Statistics are showing that the freelance economy is growing 3x the pace of full-time employment within the past five years. So it's, it's happening, right? Uh, this is a big trend and shift towards the future of work. Now, getting to your point around credentialing and can someone who does, who does not have those credentials from the gig economy jump into the gig economy in a fluid way, I would reposition that and ask you the question of, well, first off, past experience, in my opinion, are the best indicator of future successes. So would you take someone for a full-time job who didn't have that past track record? So, um, sure, first job out of undergrad, it's a different story. Um, but, you know, for looking for the skilled labor that has experiences before, you're going to look at their resume and what they've done. So regardless of whether they're trying to go to freelance or go to a new job in a full-time employment capacity, you're looking at that past track record. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess, do you envision tiers and maybe even not specific to the Paro platform, but like, you know, so we, th we think of when we hire people, we think of years of experience, right? And mm -hmm. education level. Um, and I'm just wondering if there is a more uh, somewhat quantitative way to kind of measure that for on-demand platforms for workers. So it's kind of like your, your tiers and the more credibility you build up, there's some kind of quantitative measurement that, um, that goes into that. And I'm curious, like, what, what do you think about that concept, like in, in general? Well, I think that the freelance economy has an incredible opportunity to shift the way we think about biases and how people are hired. In the traditional sense, if you look at someone's resume and all else equal, someone has, you mentioned earlier, a Harvard stamp on it, and the other one has ITT Tech, which one are you going to go with? Um, I would make a pretty strong argument that neither of those things matter. It's all about what they've been able to accomplish in their career and in the freelance economy, whichever path you want to go. And so the past experiences are the best indicator of future successes and future outcomes. So I think the freelance economy using matchmaking algorithms and machine learning have um, a much, uh, a big opportunity to shape how we think about biases and hiring processes. Now, granted, if you train your machine learning algorithms to have inherent biases, that's a whole nother story. But I believe that the opportunity exists for the freelance economy to make some positive impact there. Yeah. Yeah, I personally love thinking about those sorts of things just because I'm, an, I'm kind of a contrarian at heart. And so I just think about all of the things that were tied to from a historical perspective about, you know, how we think about employees or how we think about experience. And um, like a lot of that is just you know, some of that is probably based on fact. Right. But some of that is just based on, oh, well, it's because we've always done it that way. Um, and I definitely think there's like an arbitrage opportunity to like look at experience and look at credentials much differently than we have in the past to, to your point, to like 
attract those candidates, find those candidates that maybe they don't have that kind of pedigree, but um, they have the exact skill set and the exact expertise that you're looking for. And so I'm excited about just all the um, innovation and evolution of, you know, not only workers, uh, right, being able to kind of identify with themselves as being that expert, um, but then also from, you know, kind of a hiring recruiting perspective, being able to tap into that. Totally. I think you could think of the gig economy and the track record that a freelancer builds on a platform using quantitative assessments and understanding what skills, tasks, and projects they've accomplished in the past. You can use that track record to almost assimilate like a medical profile, the equivalent of like a, a medical profile of that person, right? So you're using that scorecard to assess their uh, physical health is the analogy I'm using here. And if you're hiring a full-time employee, it's essentially as if you have that medical history in front of you, right? So it removes all those biases. You don't have to go do the reference checks. You don't have to ask their previous boss about how they performed in the workplace because you have all that data at your disposal. That's really powerful. Yep. No, I totally agree. Shifting gears a little bit. So we talked about, you know, kind of the supply side. So the worker side. Now, if we look at, you know, the demand side, so kind of that mid-market company that you guys work with today, um, I'm really curious on, like, if I'm that mid-market company, and let's say I'm using uh, Paro for the first time uh, to recruit somebody, what advice would you give me just in terms of, like, I want to differentiate myself and I want to build kind of a, a great onboarding experience for the worker that I retain? And kind of what, what have you seen work well? And then maybe what have you seen not work well? Uh, for the the enterprise? So my advice is, if you're a mid-market company, to uh, make the freelancer feel valued because happy people are more productive. If people feel valued, they're going to produce better outcomes. So treat freelancers like humans as opposed to objects and numbers. And I've seen a lot of mid-market companies fail here by just treating freelancers like a number. Uh, and associating them with an outcome. The more that you humanize that entire process and treat them like they're an employee, if not even better than an employee, you're going to have those better outcomes. I'm not, I'm not saying that in terms of building a name brand as a company that accepts freelancers with open arms. I'm saying it from a standpoint of you will get better outcomes if you treat freelancers like humans. So if I'm that business and I am integrating a remote worker, um, how, what, what are some of the things that I can do to kind of make them feel like they are, you know, part of the team? And maybe part of that answer is technology. Um, but I'm curious, like, what are some tangible things that you've seen that make that worker feel like they are part of the team, even though if they're just working, let's say, for a few months and it's uh, remote? I mean, there are a lot of softwares that are enabling team collaboration. So first off, in the finance and accounting arena, the rise of cloud accounting softwares is the why now, right? It's enabling the virtual worker and people to do things even halfway around the world. Uh, cloud accounting, cloud productivity tools exist to enable those office communications. And I think there are a bunch of tools out there, uh, Slack, for example, where you can just bring freelancers into the mix and those team communications so they feel like they're a part of that team versus sitting on an island because freelancing can be a very lonely, um, a lonely endeavor. Yep. 
Yeah. And then I'm, I'm curious, like to extend that a little bit, um, what do you think is still missing? So like if you could wave a magic wand and create, you know, maybe it's a technology, but maybe it's just something else that's missing from the freelance economy. Um, what would that be? So, and that's maybe a call out to entrepreneurs that are listening that, um, what should be built that has a demand that's just not being met today to support the, the freelance economy? Hmm. I, I'm going to go a little philosophical here because I, I believe that the future of work is all about the people. And I think that a lot of labor platforms treat freelancers like objects and numbers. And I believe that the most successful people in the future are going to have a resilient, purposeful growth mindset. And they're going to be problem explorers is the best example that I like to give. So what I'm getting at is I think people should focus on humanizing freelancers. And that's just a mindset. I don't think it's one specific thing. And if you humanize freelancers, then you'll get better outcomes. It will open your world to the possibilities of leveraging on-demand experts and change the path and growth trajectory of your company. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that I really like about Paro is your company values. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you came up with those and maybe just, you know, kind of one or two that resonate with you. Just expand on those uh, a bit. Sure. So Team Endeavor, for sure. We pulled them together early on. It's something that I care a lot about is creating a culture where people feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. And a part of that is having a purposeful, mission-driven organization. And I see mission or your purpose as being like the North Star towards which you're constantly driving. And then the values being the guardrails with which you're making decisions, you're hiring people, how you're carrying yourself on an ongoing basis. So all of our values are incredibly important. And from an early um, nascent stage in our organization's evolution, we wanted to do that as a team because it's something that we cared about. We were growing very quickly. I think we had in the back of our minds an idea of what those values were, but we needed to put pen to paper um, to solidify them for the growth of the organization and making sure that we were hiring people according to those bounds. And you asked, like, what do I think are the, the couple most important ones? Well, first of all, I think they're all incredibly important, but I think framing it another way is like, which ones mean the most to me? Um, I'd say there are probably two or three. The first one is enjoy the journey. I think just having fun in everything you do is incredibly important. Take smart risks is another one of them. So for us, it's constantly falling on your face and failing, but learning from that, right? It's just the idea of having a growth mindset and continuous improvement. If you learn from your failures, you will grow quicker than someone who doesn't fail. And the last one is be yourself. And I mentioned this earlier around creating an environment where people feel like they can bring their whole authentic selves to work. That's really meaningful and powerful and important to me because I believe that if people feel that way, they're going to be more productive, they're going to be more creative, they're going to be more innovative, and they're going to love what they do even more. So I think those three values probably shine through above the rest for me personally, and I'm sure every person in the organization has differing op uh, opinions about that. Yeah, that's interesting. So I can relate definitely on a personal level with those. I mean, I left kind of the traditional insurance industry uh, partially because 
you know, I felt like I couldn't really be the same person I was at work that I was at home. You know, I just didn't feel like I fit in anymore to the industry. And, um, and so, yeah, I definitely resonate with that. And it was interesting when we, so when we came up with our values, um, at Bunker, one of the things that we, I kind of equated culture and values a little bit to equity in a company, right? So if you, if you think about equity in a company, right, the earlier you started a company, um, you know, if you're, uh, like say Silicon Valley, you know, venture back company, typically the more equity you own in the company. Um, and culture is kind of the same way, right? If you, let's say if you're one of the first 10 employees at a company, you kind of own a bigger piece of that culture. You can help shape and kind of define that culture more meaningfully than if you're the hundredth employee. Right. And I think it's, it's both, um, it's ultimately an opportunity, but it's, also a responsibility. Um, and this is kind of how we talk about it as a team where, you know, let's say if we fast forward the clock six months or a year and the culture at Bunker isn't what we want it to be, you know, we're the ones that are responsible for that. Um, and we all kind of own a piece of it. And, you know, it's, it is a great opportunity because the earlier you start in a company, the more that you can kind of influence and, and drive the culture, you know, to what you want it to be. So, I, I like everything that you said and, and definitely resonates with kind of how we think about it at Bunker as well. Yeah, I've taken a similar, if not minorly nuanced uh, approach there, which is every new hire that we bring on, I spend time with them and I talk to them about our culture and what our values are. And I've received this question a lot, which is, how are you going to make sure that we maintain our culture as we scale exponentially? And my response is always the same. I asked them straight back, how are you going to make sure that we maintain our culture as we scale exponentially? Because in my opinion, every person within our organization is responsible for maintaining our culture and allowing us to scale and grow. And every single person should take that responsibility very seriously. And, and so even though I agree with you that early employees and founders have a disproportionate um, say in what those values and culture are, I think at scale and as you exponentially grow, um, newer employees have a disproportionate say in maintaining that culture. Yep. No, I definitely agree. Any kind of final thoughts that you wanted to leave the listeners with before we sign off? Um, in terms of advice, I would say experiment and try. I think that the future of work is upon us. And I think that traditional walls of employment of having a nine to five onsite job are constantly changing and very quickly evolving. So embrace this future and just try. Experiment with things in a low risk environment because that experimenting mindset, that growth mindset, the problem explorer mindset will enable you as an employee of your organization to be more progressive and on the cutting edge of these changes and will position you for success. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, no, I mean, I really appreciate the time that you took with us today and um, really look forward to seeing what Paro has in store over the next few months and, uh, and years as you disrupt the accounting and uh, finance industry. Um, so thanks for uh, taking the time to be on. Yeah, really appreciate it, Chad. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and of course, uh, thanks to our listeners too. We hope you can join us again on the next episode of Ready, Set, Work. We love to hear from our listeners. If you have ideas, thoughts for guests, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please reach out. Tweet us at BunkerHQ using the hashtag ReadySetWork 
or email us directly at hello at buildbunker.com. All right, back to work.